0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Manufacturing the Future. You know, manufacturers have faced multiple challenges over the last year with COVID forcing operations to adopt strategies and alter processes to keep production going in the most uncertain times since World War II. Now, operational resiliency, well, that's going to define companies that emerge strongly from the pandemic. And today I'll be speaking with an expert on this subject, Abby Eon, General Manager, Kepware at Boston, Massachusetts-based PTC. Abby, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, great to be here. Abby, you were previously VP of software development at Kepware, so you've seen many changes in the industry. So uh, can we start with connectivity? Now, connectivity manufacturing, now that's evolved from paper-based feedback systems, you know, pioneered by Deming in the quality movement. Then we moved to centralized monitoring of analog signals fed by dedicated sensors to today's sort of Ethernet-dominated, PLC-controlled environment. You know, now the industry is looking at a world of cloud-connected devices that generate huge amounts of data. So what's the current state-of-the-art in manufacturing operations as you see it? And is it optimized? Are we where we need to be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So I think if you look back, um, I work with a Kepware product that's been around for 20 years. And so we've really seen the evolution here. And now we're in this, this Ethernet era and it's not just about automation. The use of data has really extended beyond that. And that's really where we see the future are companies who understand the value of this data not necessarily a point-to-point connection, like to power a specific application, but really breaking down these silos and creating an infrastructure across their organization to make that accessible to different types of applications. So when you start thinking about a lot of these companies coming in during digital transformation, they're thinking more holistically about their data. When they're putting something like a PLC on the floor that's controlling some kind of asset, they're thinking about different use cases. Potentially, they're working alongside with data scientists who are thinking about AI and other analytics use cases upstream. They're thinking about ways that that data might need to be normalized, processed, manipulated in some ways. So it's really a data strategy versus just these kind of point-to-point connections that we've seen. And this is really just in the last five years we've started to see this mature when you say state of the art i think the maturity level is all across the spectrum right now um so really there are no standards around this kind of uh standard data layer if you will there's emerging ones and so we're gonna start to see you know those come to market we're gonna at the same time start to see people really like coming up with their own proprietary methods and only time will tell how that's going to play out.
0: Abby, it's there was a time when in manufacturing, uh, there was sort of a bifurcation. There were big capable companies and there were small players. And big capable companies, well, they always led with technology in, in every form. And then eventually it sort of trickled down this, the, the supply chain to the smaller players. In some cases forced, they were dragged into the future by their, their larger customers. Is that still true today? I mean, is, are these technologies now, are they more accessible to smaller players?
1: I would say, so we've seen a split, especially with um, things like the prevalence of a do-it-yourself implementation of IoT-type technologies. So we have even seen very traditional control system integrators come in. They understand that, you know, I always like to say, it's not like IoT invented OEE. It's been around for a long time. Um, So, I mean, these are designers at heart. They're people who have designed SCADA applications and quality systems. And so they just see this as an extension of their tool set, and they will start building solutions for very specific problems. And I think that is, there's there's a lot of innovation at that real-time controls and those engineering levels. Um, for those bigger companies, yes, now they're thinking about these broad enterprise digital transformations, um, but even those have started in different sections of companies. I just read something that about, um, on average, an enterprise has 13 different IoT platforms across its entire enterprise. So, you're going to see a trend of people moving towards standardizing that to maybe a platform for application development. But at the same time, when it comes down into the individual sites, they're all solving slightly different problems. So, you'll see these more customized uh, applications going out. And it's not dissimilar to what's being built from the bottoms up. So I do believe that's all gonna to blend together and the smaller companies will have a similar model when it comes to really where the work is happening. About
0: a decade 10, 15 years ago, there was a general belief that large integrated platforms are rigid and that it's it's more expensive to then alter your your software to conform with changing production needs on the shop floor than it is to have a sort of a of a piecemeal system where you have multiple control systems all talking to each other which of course brings its own problems in there is is that still true i mean if you go is, the goal is always to get one integrated package that handles everything from the you know procurement at the front end to shipping at the uh, at the loading dock there is that truly
1: possible i think what we're seeing from a technology perspective. So we just, we talked a little bit about how technology is coming in to solve these problems. I do think a lot of these IoT platforms in general and even analytic platforms, they're moving towards a solutions mindset. So it is like a best in suite. Um, But a lot of that's just around getting value from IoT because it's so expansive, right? There's so many use cases. And especially when you start getting more complex, like into AI type analytic predictive maintenance. so when you see that, the idea of a solution that a company can embrace on an enterprise level, that's you know the one the one call to make, and all of that off, like there is a big benefit as we're in our infancy in some of these really scaled IoT implementations. I think technology trends have shown us though that over time you start to see these best of breed components coming in. Uh, and that's usually an evolution, right? We get really comfortable with grand-scale rollouts and those turnkey solutions. And then maybe there are little aspects that we want to tweak from a performance standpoint. So I do see that as a future evolution. I mean, I think we have to get to a point where we're comfortable getting that time to value from IoT to start with uh, before we can get there. I also definitely see um, interoperability. And you know, I, I did mention there isn't necessarily a standard for how we model industrial data across an enterprise but they're absolutely standards for how we transfer that data, right? Like an MQTT, OPC UA. So as people think about interoperability in these components, um, that's a a split on vendors. I think OPC UA for the industrial data machine data space is certainly almost universal. Um, And so I think you'll see these pieces that are essentially pluggable because they know, like you're saying, it's very rigid to be in that kind of platform long-term, right? The reality is, it's always been heterogeneous, and it will, to some effect, always be.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know the sensor technology has dropped exponentially in cost, and the ability to, to process and clean up that that data as well, but uh, to feed into a network that that's dropped exponentially in cost as well. And the result I'm seeing is is that where we used to work with say a half a dozen data points, for example, in perhaps an injection molding process, now it's possible to have a hundred or two hundred or perhaps even a thousand at this point. Uh, it's. Is there a possibility of overloading or flooding systems with too much information? And how do you determine what is truly important and actionable information and what is noise in that system?
1: Such an excellent question. And yes, there is that possibility. Um, like I said, there needs to be a data strategy. And I think when you go in, most of the time a company is gonna be starting with a proof of concept or value, depending on which term you like and they're going to be thinking about solving you know, a specific, I did bring up OE for a reason, that is a very common use case that people are starting from. Um, and as they're going into that, they're thinking about, well, hopefully, if we're doing a top-down value-driven approach, you're thinking about the data points you need specific to solve that problem. And I'd kind of augment that with, you also need to think about where exactly do you need to get those insights? So if I'm trying to make a decision about, say, quality, and everything that I have is something that is on-prem at the edge, do I really need to send that to the cloud if the only thing I'm doing is a logical check? I can probably take some data points. Maybe I do have to do conditional logic, and I can process that data and get my insights right there. Versus if you're building an analytics model and you need a lot of data and you need to stream it in, In that case, you might be sending a lot of data to the cloud to get that kind of compute and processing, and the latency might be okay because you're looking at it on an enterprise-wide, looking at the trends that you might have. So I think it's data strategy built by what's the value you're trying to derive. You have to be a little strategic because you might be solving OE today, but what are the main pieces you might need tomorrow? And that again goes back to engineering and a process perspective. And then also thinking about this you know, edge to cloud continuum and where are my insights going to happen.
0: i I'm glad you brought up uh, processes because manufacturers tend to think in terms of their processes. You know, Data analytics and many operations that I see operate sort of as digital analogs to old school sort of mechanical you know, feedback systems. But I mean, is there a higher level of understanding of about manufacturing processes that's going unexplored or could be better explored that's hidden inside these much more capable systems today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, um, you'll hear a lot about the concept of digital thread, which has a lot, I would say, of nuances depending on who's talking about it. But you just brought up that concept, right, of, of the digital twin. We have something that is a digital representation of something physical, but it's not just the information about, say, the asset or the process or the things that are available in the OT space. You want to start thinking about things like you know, spatial data, which is only going to get augmented from separate either sensors, you know, cameras, things like this. You also have, you know, data around the origin of these assets or these processes that you're going to get from IT-based systems. And I think the ability to tie in, you know, without getting too promoting PTC, but, you know, one of the things we look at strategically is, you know, you design a product, you get to a point where you're managing its life cycle. you get to a point where it's out in the field, and we need to track what's happening, and you want these constant feedback loops. And so this model that you built really should be an aggregation of data from all of these different sources, and not just siloed to the specific, you know, asset itself, or in the case of a process you know, not just specific to what's happening in that action on the plant four. There's so much more data. And that's, again, the edge to cloud piece. We have to think about where the data lives. How do I source it? Where does it need to be?
0: For a century, more than a century manufacturing, it's been about high volume, low mix. The, the way to get consistent quality lowest possible cost is to make a lot of one thing. And that, of course, gives you a huge data set of a very, very specific thing. So if I'm stamping widgets, basically, I know if I can measure a million of them, I can get a pretty good idea whether I'm I'm making them well or not making them. Today, it seems to be the opposite way. We're seeing manufacturers going to increasing product customization and high mix, low volume, large overall production but very, very little production of a specific specification or 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 type of product. And the result of that, of course, is that you don't necessarily have a massive data set to work with, but you still need to to glean you know, actionable information from that. Uh, is where does the software step in at this point? How, how do you sort of paper over that problem?
1: So when you're thinking about that digital twin, and I I really did bring in specifically the design of a particular asset, and as well as, you know, the bill of materials that's going to go then manufacture that, because you have to think about, we talked about that data layer, but you have to think about that data model and all of those aspects that are coming in. I mean, the reality is with the generation that we're in, that we can have everything on demand, everything we need, we can custom order things like, you know, it's, it's going to be increasing that we're able to do that. And so it becomes very important um, decisions around, you know, what did I put in this particular asset for you know, how we track the life cycle of it? And I think that's really that key data of building out your digital representation or your digital twin, bringing in those different data points um, so that you can think a lot more strategically around how you manufacture smaller lots, right? And then that's also going to tie into things about how we build our, you know, production systems and automation to make them very flexible, so that we can do small orders and we can, with the same equipment, accommodate, you know, different customizations on that. So that's going to evolve it in not just a data sense, but as you, you know, I'm sure you've seen just how we're thinking about building the lines that can actually do the manufacturing. Uh,
0: Abby, how do you define operational resiliency? What do we mean by resilient in your context?
1: Resiliency, I think, close to home right now, we've talked about this for a long time, but with COVID coming in and the pandemic, we saw companies, and I will say a lot of small companies, too, got hit with this, they had to shut down their operations. And some of it was as simple as, I can't have these two people sitting this close to each other. Some of it was, you know, for years, we've talked about automating these systems, but it's a manual inspection right now. Um, So, I think we always hear digital transformation is something that's gonna lead to people being resilient and their operations you know, not being in a shutdown system and not being in that. But what we have to think about in that context is it's not just fancy IoT, it could be as simple as automating that process so two people aren't standing that close together. That right there is creating resiliency, right? And then as you think about it broader, it really does then extend towards that whole digital transformation piece about there are going to be places that we're using new technologies to make our operations more productive, uh, more robust, have more redundancy with it, and essentially keep operating and operating as efficiently as possible. I think that's kind of the piece where businesses are going to be looking at strategically to make sure that they're not falling behind and not you know, being the next blockbuster video.
0: Abby, are you talking about risk management here?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a level of risk management with that. uh,
0: Historically, I come from the automotive industry, the manufacturing side originally, and our idea of of resiliency was um, if a tornado blows through here and we have a power outage, what do we do when our process equipment cools down because we can't let it cool down because if we have to reheat it from scratch, our set points are gone, we go through a sort of of a random period of instability before things settle down and we have a production loss not only from the downtime from the power failure, but from the time it takes to actually get production stable again. Which is a finite time, which is considerably longer sometimes than the time that the time that is down, uh, is is that something that we can address with software? Is that something where we can we can sort of of go back to where we were running sweetly just before everything went to hell?
1: Software can do anything, <laughs> of course, and I mean that's that's a great example too of you know a traditional resiliency. We used to think about things of of natural disaster. Um, now we have to think about things also, cybersecurity is an increasing threat out there and you know, can create situations where you also are in similar downtime. So I think some of these and, and the advantage to some of these things is digitizing and creating these digital copies of what's happening in the physical world and saving information like that, being able to rapidly bring that back online and be able to cut down the time that you have a gap from when production was shut down to when you can be back up and productive.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought this security issue up because that was the next question. That's, I mean, cloud cloud, cloud connectivity. Let's face it; it means that if, uh, as an extruder, I can sit in a beach in Cancun and I can monitor the set points of my machine making extrusions, you know, all day and all night but also means that the rest of planet Earth potentially can tap into that data stream and find out what I'm doing as well. And for many manufacturers now where they're involved in things like military contracts, they have ITER, they have have some kind of classified information, often proprietary information that the customer is interested in protecting. There there are many sort of opinions about how secure is secure. I've been to um, uh, aerospace plant a smaller supplier to, to a, Euro, a large European maker of commercial aircraft, and um, they simply didn't wouldn't cloud connect anything. You literally had to carry a laptop and jack it into to, to, uh, machine tools. Can it be truly secure?
1: Can it be? <laughs> I think security is an arms race, right? And your strategy around it, we often talk about defense in depth. So as a software manufacturer, it is our responsibility to make our software as secure as possible and in that arms where says, we have to be responsive. We have to be looking at, you know, if we have third party embedded, we have to think about those vulnerabilities. We have to be working with the right government agencies. And you'll see this across. I think the automation industry has really matured on this and is using all of the Homeland Security type tools to make things aware. Then the next level is, you know, okay, well now as a customer, you need to be accountable for that. You need to be accountable for watching those alerts, for updating your systems. And I think we all know, especially for you know a product like Kepware, which is essentially you know, an edge communication platform, but we're aggregating data and sending it up to applications, you don't interact with it every day. So you have to be really mindful of your infrastructure, all of the pieces, the pieces you don't see every day. And then on top of that, you're gonna have your IT team that's helping you secure your networks, so I think when you say, is it ever truly secure? I mean, there's always gonna be a cutting edge of bad actors that are gonna be trying to go in here. I think one of the things that we will see as we go forward is what type of company do you wanna be as a manufacturer? Right now, the trend is you know, things that the more real time, the closer to the controls network it is, the less likely that they're going to share that data or that they even can, as you just pointed out, right? But as we start becoming, we see a lot of value on the other side of like, okay, I can see this data at an enterprise level and wow, I'm getting insights and it's actually bringing me, I'm saving, you know, millions of dollars. You know, we do see that trends coming down and then it becomes about the physical act, you know, of, of securing, of IT's job to secure and OT's job to secure. And when you think about pipes to public cloud, for example, or even private cloud, How much do you want your company to be, you know, in charge of the latest technologies with security, have their head in it, um, or how much would you rather have a cloud provider who has entire teams dedicated to this um, be entrusted with that? And I think that's just a decision every company will have to make. It will be different in different industries due to government regulation, due to risk of life safety. Um, I think all of those will be a component, but... You know, a lot of enterprises found just in the IT voyage of, you know, kind of more business data going into the cloud is, at the end of the day, based on how they staffed IT, it was actually more secure to send something into AWS or Azure because they have that company and they just didn't want to spend there.
0: Abby, uh, last question. Is the elephant in the room? I've got to bring it up. Um, AI. Uh, Are we moving toward a world in which manufacturing is simply no longer controlled and decisions are no longer made by people? Are we going to see a level of of automation and and algorithmic control of operations to the point where we simply do what the computer tells us to do?
1: You started with a lot of this going to all we do is this, and I think the reality is um, leads a little bit off of what we just talked about on like what do you want to spend on as a manufacturer right i think there's certainly going to be a wide breadth of technology out there that's going to help with these things as they mature more they will become more and more out of the box you'll get faster time to value but you will be constantly optimizing these you need to keep them connected to your physical infrastructure to your business logic And that's always going to create a position that is, you know, within your company that will have to be the domain experts and the SMEs that are going to be working with us. I think it's unrealistic to say that, you know, any single given like process that's customized to meet a certain manufacturer's demand is, you know, an out of the box solution is just gonna work that way. So someone will need to be on the business side, implementing, maintaining. You know, These are gonna be places where we're continuously improving. Where we're continuously trying to deliver value and that doesn't happen magically through software. That's gonna be on the business side too, bringing that in. On the engineering side, bringing that in. Um, I think we're a very long way off, even if we had the technology for the trust of organizations to fully rely on it. Maybe they've, you know, looked at Skynet too much, but um, (laughs) certainly aspirational, um, you know, maybe a possibility far in the future that there's going to be a really heavy AI. But I think in the near term, especially as the market matures, you're going to see a nice balance of really people coming in as um, some of our other folks in manufacturing, you know, aging out essentially and retiring from the workforce, younger people coming in that are digital natives. And they're really gonna, you know, elevate the level of interactions they're doing with these systems.
0: Abby Eon, General Manager of Cutware, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you. And thank you for joining us in Manufacturing the Future. See you next time.